I want to begin by asking you a question. And the question is this, what do you expect of God? What do you want out of him? What is it that you hope God will do? Or what is it that you believe God should do? Philip Yancey in his book, Well Over a Million Sold, called Disappointment with God, identifies that one of the prominent things in our country is this issue of disappointment. I was with Philip one time and I asked him, I said, why do you think that this book, among all of your books, and he's written many of them, wonderful, is your number one bestseller? He said, because largely in America, it's the single greatest feeling we see in American churches, disappointment. Disappointment with God, and at times disappointment with each other. What you realize is that your disappointment is always in direct proportion to your expectations. And here's the danger. If your expectations of God are things that he never agreed to, you will guarantee a day that you will come and you'll walk out. Just like these individuals did at the end of this little narration here. When it comes to the end, I'm in verse 66 of chapter 6. It says, from this time on, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. Why? Because Jesus did a little investigative work and he came to them and he asked them this question. What do you want from me? What do you expect from God? And what Christ found out and what sometimes we need to find out, and it's not that I want us to walk out of here and have a, you know, a quarter of you say, I'm, I'm out of the Christian life. It's, that's not my goal. But I would say that probably some of you in this room are setting yourselves up for a severe crash of reality. And it's that reality that comes to you where God doesn't meet your expectations where God hasn't signed up for your expectations. And when you discover that, like these disciples, you might just walk away from him. And when you do, you'll walk away from the church. And when you walk away from the church, you will discover a reason why they are horrible and failed and why God has not met your very need. And maybe what you need to do is exactly what Jesus did with these dear friends and understand that some people pursue God for the wrong reasons and you need to know that today. What are they? Well, there's three of them in this text. The first one comes right away. They find Jesus and they say, hey, how'd you get over here? They're just kind of intrigued because they saw who got in the boat and Jesus wasn't a part of the, the team And all of a sudden they go over to the other side and Jesus shows up and they're kind of all excited about it. But notice Jesus doesn't play their game. He's kind of, to be honest with you, plays a little hardball. And he comes back to them and he says, I tell you the truth, you're looking for me not because you saw the miraculous signs or frankly, you're not interested in how I got here. Here's your interest. You ate the loaves and you had your fill and you want more. In other words, they wanted full stomachs. And there are some people that by nature, what they want out of God is what he provides. 
And they have a long list. If you ever hear them pray, their prayer is all about, God, would you provide this? God, would you do this? God, would you open this door? Would you give me a different job? Would you give my wife a different job? And it's always about provision. Because the fundamental relationship and what they expect out of God is, God, I want you to perform for me and do this. I want you to provide this in my life. Now, is it wrong to ask God for those things? No, unless that is the only and exclusive nature of your relationship. What do you expect of God? If you were to evaluate your own prayer over the last six months to a year, what does it demonstrate? Do you have those moments where you're praying for your own repentance, where you're asking God for transformation? Or fundamentally, when you listen to yourself, are you asking for provision? Because Jesus says, my friend, if that's all you want out of God, you're going to be hungry. You're going to be thirsty. You're going to come for, to a day where God's not going to jump through your circus hoops and God's not going to be the candy cane to you and he's not going to be the slot machine to you. And all of a sudden, then you're going to realize, hey, wait a minute, God, you let me down. And God might say to you, I never signed up for this. Some people pursue God for the wrong reasons. They, they want full stomachs and some want what I call an earned life. They come to him and have another question. Then they asked him, hey, what must we do to do the works God requires? In other words, what is it that we have to do so that God will be pleased with us? Give us the list, would you please? You're a holy man. I mean, you turned you know, water into wine. You walked on the water, big stuff. God clearly must be pleased with you. What must we do? Ten commandments, we're in. You want 11? I'll give it to you. And there are some people who have a list. Watch the right movie, read the right book, pray the right prayers, give the right amount. And all of this is motivated by this internal list in their head, or some of them have been brave enough to just write it down, and they know what list it is that if they do that, God is pleased with them. But sometimes it gets a little darker than that. If they do all of this, then God has to answer their prayers. There's enough in the scripture you can find this. You go to Peter and Peter says to you husbands, hey, if you don't treat your wife well, if you don't honor and respect her, then your prayers aren't going to make it past the ceiling. So a guy turns that into a list. He goes, okay. Hey, hey, babe, we okay? Been loving you good, you know, and got a nice new sweater. And... <laughs> we do all of that. And what do we do with that? Well, you know what, God? I asked my wife. She said she was happy. You got to be in. You, you got some prayers to answer. And what we're doing internally, Jesus says, is there are some individuals coming to Christ saying, give me a list. Tell me how I put a smile on God's face so that I can ultimately get what I want. And Jesus says, I never signed up for that. I don't have a list. I don't have a list at all. In fact, he says, uh, you want a relationship with God? Believe. Believe in the one that he sent. Ooh, that's, I need more than that. I need a list. 
Because with a list, we get what? Leverage. With a list, we get comfort. With a list, we feel like, ah, now I know she's serious. Now I know he's serious. Some of you, your list shows up in the kind of person you're looking to marry. You got a list. She's got a, he's got a, and you got this list. And that list is not only for your expectations of them, but it's actually what you think pleases God. And all it takes is for God to not answer your prayer. And you throw your list up into his face and say, I did all of these. Why didn't you hold up your end of the deal? Because some people pursue God for the wrong reasons. They want full stomachs, they want an earned life, or they want a verified life. They come to him with another question. Hey, uh, Jesus, what miraculous sign then will you give us that we may see and believe you? Now stop for a moment. Just, let's just remind ourselves of the context. What just happened? They came, they'd just been fed. So every one of these rascals that are having this conversation with Jesus, they had just been in the setting where some 15,000 people were fed. Now, not just 15,000 people were fed. Let's just break down all of the different miracles that happened on that day. Number one, Jesus out of nowhere came up with enough bread and enough fish to feed 15,000 people. Number two, he out of nowhere discovered 12 really large baskets. Where did he get them? Did he go to one neighbor and say, I need to borrow your baskets? And what neighbor has 12 baskets? Miracle number two. They went out and he said, I want all of you to eat whatever you want. Go out and check them. Don't waste a thing. And when you come back, bring the extra bread. 12 disciples went out with 12 baskets and they just so happened after feeding 15,000 people and all of them eating exactly what they wanted, came back with enough bread for every disciple to carry back a basket. And then they have the nerve they have the nerve. Jesus walked on water, and you don't think that one got out. They have the nerve to come to Jesus and say, so what miraculous sign then are you going to give us so that we can please believe you? Are you kidding me? If, if one of you walked over to the hospital, and you walked through and said, I got faith, I got enough faith to heal everyone. And you walked over to that hospital, Salem Hospital, and you touched every person over there and every one of them got healed and walked out. I don't think anyone would say, okay, there's the Willamette. I dare you. Prove you're really supernatural and walk across the river. I'm sorry. If you vacated the hospital, that'd be enough for me. I believe that God has given you a supernatural gift. I would never make you prove it one more time. But here's the problem. Some people either want a full stomach or they want the applause of God for all that they've done or they have a demanding spirit and forever want God to prove himself. And so they begin to make these leveraged relationships with God. God, 
if you bring my son home, I will always go to church. God, if you take my transgendering daughter and give her a passionate love and a feminine heart, then God, I will give the rest of my life. I will, I will quit drinking. And we're always leveraging God with if you, I will. If you. What miracle are you going to do, Jesus? And if you do, then I will believe you. God would say to them, and he would say to you, if the resurrection is not enough, I'm not going to jump through your hoops. It's not that God won't do the miraculous. It's God that won't answer your prayer. It's that if you develop a relationship with God that is forever asking him, prove yourself, at some point you're going to walk away. A dear brother in our church was telling me about a gentleman that he knew in his church growing up. And he prayed for people. He believed, and I think he probably did, had a, a really significant relationship in, of faith. And he would pray for people and they would be healed. He had other supernatural gifts and they manifested themselves in his life. And he, he was a significant person in the church. And then this gentleman's father got ill. And he prayed that his father would be healed and his father died. He's walked away from the church and from God and has never, ever darkened the door again. Why? Because some people pursue God for the wrong reason. Some want God to always prove himself. And if God doesn't jump through their hoop, they're more than willing to walk away they did. From that time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. Why? Because Jesus exposed something in their heart and he might be doing that right now in you. If you have created a relationship with God that is dependent upon his provision to your faithfulness, is dependent upon his applause for your good work, or is dependent upon your demands and his fulfillment. Jesus has a word for you. Beware. Because God oftentimes will tell us, I didn't sign up for that. What Jesus wants from you and from me is what he wanted for them and that is some people pursue God for life. Not for what he does, not for the performance, not for the provision, but because God has a gift that no list that you can do and no demand that you give, he gives you something, but it is, number one, a gift from the Father. Not something you earn, not a list you perform, not a demand, it's a gift. They come to him and they, they say, hey, let's do a little history lesson. Let's go back and remind ourselves that what our, our forefathers, verse 31, ate the manna in the desert. And as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And, and Jesus comes to them and said, I need to correct something. It wasn't Moses. You guys are all enamored about Moses. It wasn't Moses. It was my father who gives you the true bread from heaven. 
For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Do you want life? Well, the Father will give it to you. But it's not Moses. And if you think for a moment that Moses is your hero, then you've missed the entire thing. The Father has a gift for you. But he says earlier in the text, what work must we do? The work of God is what? Believe. That's it. We want a list. We do. We want a list because we're, we're comfortable with a list. And yet Jesus comes to them and says, ah, you've missed the whole point. Let me take you down through manna that you just brought up. This gift that you talk about the, the, that Moses gave. It wasn't Moses, it was the father. And, and, and what was it? Well, what are the similarities Jesus said between my bread and that bread? It's number one, it was perfect. It, it, it had a perfection. Every morning it was absolutely the same. It provided everything you need. It was perfect. There wasn't anything wrong with it. It wasn't moldy. Nothing's wrong with it. It was perfect. Just like the bread that the Father is going to give you. Not only that, it was accessible. Some of you guys are good hunters and you go out. But let me tell you, if you hunt, you're going to go hunt and hike 10 miles just to find, you know, a deer or whatever the case may be. No, every day they walked out of their tent and boom, they would have had to step on it to miss the manna. Everyone received it. Everyone was provided for. It was accessible to everyone. And thirdly, it was sustainable. For 40 years, God fed them. Now, I guarantee it, probably most of us in this room uh, would be really sick and tired of manna after 40 years. Don't blame me. I would be too. But when it comes down to living, I'm not sure that I would complain. He sustained them. And Jesus tells them in this text, verse 35, I'm the bread of life and he who comes to me will never go hungry and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. I will meet your every need. But it's not a list that you do. It's the father who wants to give you that gift. It's the father who wants to save you. It's the father who wants to meet every need you have. And when he does, it is a gift which will completely satisfy. I think when they heard this, they wondered, what would it be like to never hunger? What would it be like to to be never thirsty? It's not a world that you and I grew up with. It's not a world that, in fact, most of us know that we eat today at lunch. uh, We're going to be hungry by dinner. If we have Chinese food today at lunch, we're going to be hungry at three. It's just the way it is. And, and you can't imagine going without liquid. You can't. And, and all you have to do is just, if you will, fast for a few days. Have you ever noticed that whenever you fast and you watch TV, every ad is about food? Yeah. And you're fasting and you're just looking and it's like, man, I'm telling you, the burgers look better. The chicken looks amazing. Even, you know... Uh, Denny's looks attractive. (laughs) And you're just like, wow, I want to go there. 
Whenever we, we cease that eating or we cease drinking for any period of time, it heightens our awareness of what Jesus is saying is really supernatural. What would it be like to be completely satisfied? What would it be like to be completely content? What would it be like to have everything that we need? What would it be like to, to have that elusive feeling of being gloriously content in whatever circumstance you find yourself in? And Jesus says, if you come to me, I'll give that to you. I will. I will meet everything that you need and you will never be hungry and you will never be thirsty. How is it that we can get that? What I have sustains you. When Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he was here in the US, this is back in Germany and he, he makes his way back to Germany when the Nazis are ruling and he knows against the warning that if you go back there, you're gonna die. But he felt the need to go back. He felt the Christians needed him. His church needed him. So he went back and sure enough, in time, short time, he was put into prison. And on the day that he was let out of prison, they said Dietrich looked normal that day other than his eyes. And when you look into his eyes, he had a peace. And he wrote a stanza and he handed it to his fellow soldiers this is not the whole poem. This is just part of it. Should it be ours to drain the cup of grieving, even to the dregs of pain, at thy command, we will never falter, thankfully receiving all that is given by thy loving hand. What does it mean that you will never hunger? You'll never thirst. It means that in any situation, including your march to death, God will give you sufficient grace for that moment. He will give you sufficient grace to meet any need. I was chatting with a dear friend who recently was told from a doctor, you're not going to make it. Uh, you're soon going to be in heaven. When I was talking with her, she said, oh, even if I die, make sure everyone knows God has been so good to me. Not one ounce of anger, not one ounce of regret that her life has been stripped away from her. Like Bonhoeffer, we will not falter, thankfully receiving all that is given by thy loving hand. If your relationship with God is one of a list or one of perform, then that doctor's words is going to fury, infuriate your heart and you'll be mad at God and you might be mad at the church and you might be mad because not enough people prayed for you. But if you've trusted Christ, if you've believed in the one who is giving you eternal life, bread that comes to give you life, then even in the worst moment of your life physically on this earth, when the doctor tells you, you're not going to live, then you'll be able to say with my friend, 
God has been so good to me. How is it that you get there? Jesus tells you in this text. It's a text that is troubling, to be honest with you. And I think it was this verse in particular that caused these disciples later in verse 66 to say, this is bizarre, we're out of here. It's given to us in verse 53 where Jesus is telling them, I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up at the last day. There are some churches, maybe you've attended one, that they will tell you when they serve communion that the body literally transforms into the body of Christ, the bread does, and the cup, the juice, literally transforms into the blood of Christ. They will tell you it's called transubstantiation. And they will tell you from this text that has to happen. Here's the problem. If this is the only text I'd have, then I would tell you, my friends, when you take of that bread, it becomes the body of Christ. And when you drink of that cup, it becomes the blood of Christ. But here's the problem. John 1.12 says, if you believe that he gives you the right to become children of God. Romans 10.9 says, if you confess Jesus is Lord and believe that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If my salvation is contingent upon me believing that Christ's body literally must be eaten and literally must be drunk, then I've got all kinds of other passages that I have to just get rid of. But if I actually believe that it is belief, as it says in this text, all you must do, what must we do to do the works of God? Jesus answered, verse 29, the work of God is this, believe in the one he has sent. So Jesus, help me put these two passages together right in the same context. Believe in the one that he has sent. Eat. Let me offer you this. What is bread to them? It's life. And what do you have to do to the, with the bread to live off of it? Eat it. What is the drink? It quenches your thirst. It gives you the ability to live. And, but what do you have to do? You have to drink it. Might it be that Jesus is talking to a group of people who are forever asking, tell me what to do so I can please God. No, you have to believe. But what does that belief look like? It looks like eating. It looks like taking in. It looks like that you have to do in faith what you do with food. You have to take it deeply in. And it allow it to become a part of you. James Boyce says it this way, and I like his words. He says, is he as real to you spiritually as something that you can taste or handle? Is he as much a part of you as that which you eat? Don't think me blasphemous, Boyce says. When I say that he must be as real and as useful to you as a hamburger and french fries. 
You see that hamburger is not going to do you any good if all you do is look at it. You got to eat it. And your relationship with God is not going to do you any good if all you do is just put out a list of what you're going to do. Jesus said, you have to believe, you have to take me into you and you have to allow my Holy Spirit to transform your heart and he has to take up residence. And not only must you take it in, but Jesus must become indispensable to you like food is, like liquid is. It it, it has a sense of which apart from it, I can't live. Is that the way you love your wife? Is that the way you lead your children? Or might you fall into the camp of some of them? Tell me what I must do. Okay, I go to church, got that off. I read the Bible every day for about 15 minutes in the morning and I throw up about three prayers and and grab four more when I'm driving. What Jesus says is that which saves you is something that becomes a part of you. Something that takes up residence in you. You have to eat of it. You have to drink of it. In other words, you have to ingest it. It has to be something that you live on, something that it it shapes every thought of your day. And when that does, you'll never be hungry because you will always be a partaker of the grace of God. It will always be something that's flowing in you and you will be able to say, with Bonhoeffer, I will never falter. Thankfully, I will receive all that God has given by your loving hand. You will hear the doctor say you're going to die. And you will say, oh, God has been so faithful to me. It has to be daily. You don't eat on a Monday and say... I'll get around to it and eat next Monday if I have the time. You don't drink a cup of water today at lunch and figure, you know what, I'll drink again on Wednesday if I have some time. Jesus taught us, give us this day, Father, our daily bread. You must receive Christ. What does it mean? It means to believe. It means to trust him. But it's not a trust that is segmented into parts of your life or moments in your week. It's a trust that touches every fabric of your being every day. What people need is not food. Jesus said, it's life. And life is a gift. Jesus is aware that some of the disciples had left. And he turns around and he looks at his disciples, the 12 of them. And he says to them, you want to go to? You out the door also? Did he take you off? Peter steps forward. Lord, we've looked around. We've heard a lot of religious leaders. We don't have anywhere else we can go. We got a million people telling us how to get religious. We have one person who says, I'll give you life. You can turn on the TV 
You can go to a lot of places and there's going to be a score of people who will tell you how to claim your healing, how to claim your economic benefit of God. They will teach you how to demand God. They will teach you how to obligate God to you. They will teach you how to have the specific prayers that mandate and assure healing. There's a million of them out there that will do that. But if you follow them, Jesus says, prepare your heart to be deeply disappointed because God may sign up for that. What he signs up for is I'll give you life. I'll transform your heart. I will renew your mind. I will write your name in the Lamb's book of life. I will be with you through prison and cancer. I will send angels to attend you and love you when your son decides he wants to be a woman. I will not abandon you in that moment. I will walk you through the valley of the shadow of death and I will be your God. Trust me, hold on to me. But you have to ingest me. You have to bring me into your life. And if you do, you will never, ever be hungry or thirsty. Because in any and every moment, my grace will flow through you.